Chapter Nine of the Scarlet Pimpernel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Emma Orsi. Chapter Nine: The Outrage. A beautiful starlit night had followed on the day of incessant rain, a cool, balmy late summer's night, essentially English in its suggestion of moisture and scent of wet earth and dripping leaves. The magnificent coach, drawn by four of the finest thoroughbreds in England, had driven off along the London road, with Sir Percy Blakeney on the box, holding the reins in his slender feminine hands, and beside him Lady Blakeney wrapped in cloth soufflers. A fifty-mile drive on a starlit summer's night. Marguerite had hailed the notion of it with delight. Sir Percy was an enthusiastic whip. His four thoroughbreds, which had been sent down to Dover a couple of days before, were just sufficiently fresh and restive to add zest to the expedition, and Marguerite revelled in anticipation of the few hours of solitude, with the soft night breeze fanning her cheeks, her thoughts wandering whither away. She knew from old experience that Sir Percy would speak little, if at all. He had often driven her on his beautiful coach for hours at night, from point to point, without making more than one or two casual remarks upon the weather or the state of the roads. He was very fond of driving by night, and she had very quickly adopted his fancy. As she sat next to him hour after hour, admiring the dexterous certain way in which he handled the reins, she often wondered what went on in that slow-going head of his. He never told her, and she had never cared to ask. At the fisherman's rest, Mr. Jellyband was going the round, putting out the lights. His bar customers had all gone, but upstairs in the snug little bedrooms Mr. Jellyband had quite a few important guests. The Comtesse de Tournay, with Suzanne, and the Vicomte, and there were two more bedrooms ready for Sir Andrew Folkes and Lord Antony Dewhurst, if the two young men should elect to honour the ancient hostelry and stay the night. For the moment, these two young gallants were comfortably installed in the coffee-room, before the huge log-fire, which, in spite of the mildness of the evening, had been allowed to burn merrily. "'I say, Jelly, has every one gone?' asked Lord Tony, as the worthy landlord still busied himself clearing away glasses and mugs. "'Every one, as you see, my lord.' "'And all your servants gone to bed?' "'All except the boy on duty in the bar, and—' added Mr. Jellyband with a laugh. <laughs> "'I expect—' He'll be asleep before long, the rascal. Then we can talk here undisturbed for half an hour. At your service, my lord. I'll leave you candles on the dresser, and your rooms are quite ready. I sleep at the top of the house myself, but if your lordship will only call loudly enough, I dare say I shall hear. All right, Jelly. And, I say, put the lamp out. The fire will give us all the light we need, and we don't want to attract the passer-by. All right, my lord. Mr. Jellyband did as he was bid. He turned out the quaint old lamp that hung from the raftered ceiling and blew out all the candles. "'Let's have a bottle of wine, Jelly,' suggested Sir Andrew. "'All right, sir.' Jellyband went off to fetch the wine. The room was now quite dark, save for the circle of ruddy and fitful light formed by the brightly blazing logs in the hearth. "'Is that all, gentlemen?' asked Jellyband, as he returned with a bottle of wine and a couple of glasses which he placed on the table. "'That'll do nicely. Thanks, Jelly.' "'Good night, my lord.' Good night, sir. Good night, Jelly. The two young men listened whilst the heavy tread of Mr. Jellyband was heard echoing along the passage and staircase. Presently even that sound died out, and the whole of the fisherman's rest seemed wrapped in sleep, save the two young men drinking in silence beside the hearth. For a while no sound was heard, even in the coffee-room, save the ticking of the old grandfather's clock and the crackling of the burning wood. All right again this time, Fuchs, asked Lord Antony at last. Sir Andrew had been dreaming, evidently, gazing into the fire, and seeing therein, no doubt, a pretty, piquant face, with large brown eyes and a wealth of dark curls round a childish forehead. 
"'Yes,' he said, still musing. "'All right.' "'No hitch?' "'None.' Lord Antony laughed pleasantly as he poured himself out another glass of wine. "'I need not ask, I suppose, whether you found the journey pleasant this time.' "'No, friend, you need not ask,' replied Sir Andrew gaily. "'It was all right.' "'Then here's to her very good health,' said jovial Lord Tony. "'She's a bonny lass, though she is a French one. "'And here's to your courtship.' May it flourish and prosper exceedingly. He drained his glass to the last drop, then joined his friend beside the hearth. Well, you'll be doing the journey next, Tony, I expect, said Sir Andrew, rousing himself from his meditations. You and Hastings, certainly. And I hope you may have as pleasant a task as I had, and as charming a travelling companion. You have no idea, Tony. No, I haven't, interrupted his friend pleasantly. "'but I'll take your word for it. "'And now,' he added, "'whilst a sudden earnestness crept over his jovial young face, "'how about business?' "'The two young men drew their chairs closer together, "'and instinctively, though they were alone, "'their voices sank to a whisper. "'I saw the Scarlet Pimpernel alone "'for a few moments in Calais,' said Sir Andrew, "'a day or two ago. "'He crossed over to England two days before we did. "'He had escorted the party all the way from Paris, "'dressed, you'll never credit it, as an old market-woman, and driving, until they were safely out of the city, the covered cart under which the Comtesse de Tournay, Mademoiselle Suzanne, and the Vicomte lay concealed among the turnips and cabbages. They, themselves, of course, never suspected who their driver was. He drove them right through a line of soldiery and a yelling mob who was screaming, Albale Aristo! But the market-cart got through along with some others, and the scarlet pimpernel, in shawl, petticoat, and hood, yelled, Abale Aristo, louder than anybody. Faith! added the young man, as his eyes glowed with enthusiasm for the beloved leader. That man's a marvel. His cheek is preposterous, I vow. And that's what carries him through. Lord Antony, whose vocabulary was more limited than that of his friend, could only find an oath or two with which to show his admiration for his leader. He wants you and Hastings to meet him at Calais said Sir Andrew, more quietly. On the second of next month. Let me see. That will be next Wednesday. Yes. It is, of course, the case of the Comte de Tournay this time. A dangerous task for the Comte, whose escape from his chateau, after he had been declared a suspect by the Committee of Public Safety, was a masterpiece of the Scarlet Pimpernel's ingenuity, is now under sentence of death. It will be rare sport to get him out of France, and you will have a narrow escape if you get through at all. Saint-Just has actually gone to meet him. Of course, no one suspects Saint-Just as yet. But after that, to get them both out of the country, if faith, twill be a tough job, and tax even the ingenuity of our chief. I hope I may yet have orders to be of the party. Have you any special instructions for me? Yes, rather more precise ones than usual. It appears that the Republican government have sent an accredited agent over to England, a man named Chauvelin, who is said to be terribly bitter against our League, and determined to discover the identity of our leader, so that he may have him kidnapped the next time he attempts to set foot in France. The Chauvelin has brought a whole army of spies with him, and until the chief has sampled the lot, he thinks we should meet as seldom as possible on the business of the League, and on no account should talk to each other in public places for a time. 
when he wants to speak to us he will contrive to let us know the two young men were both bending over the fire for the blaze had died down and only a red glow from the dying embers cast a lurid light on a narrow semicircle in front of the hearth the rest of the room lay buried in complete gloom sir andrew had taken a pocket-book from his pocket and drawn therefrom a paper which he unfolded and together they tried to read it by the dim red firelight so intent were they upon this so wrapped up in the cause the business they had so much at heart so precious was this document which came from the very hand of their adored leader that they had eyes and ears only for that they lost count of the sounds around them of the dropping of the crisp ash from the grate of the monotonous ticking of the clock of the soft almost imperceptible rustle of something on the floor close beside them a figure had emerged from under one of the benches with snake-like noiseless movements it crept closer and closer to the two young men not breathing only gliding along the floor in the inky blackness of the room you are to read these instructions and commit them to memory said sir andrew then destroy them he was about to replace the letter-case into his pocket when a tiny slip of paper fluttered from it and fell on to the floor lord antony stooped and picked it up what's that he asked i don't know replied sir andrew it dropped out of your pocket just now it certainly does not seem to be with the other paper strange i wonder when it got there it is from the chief he added glancing at the paper both stooped to try and decipher this last tiny scrap of paper on which a few words had been hastily scrawled when suddenly a slight noise attracted their attention which seemed to come from the passage beyond what's that said both instinctively lord antony crossed the room towards the door which he threw open quickly and suddenly at that very moment he received a stunning blow between the eyes which threw him back violently into the room simultaneously the crouching snake-like figure in the gloom had jumped up and hurled itself from behind upon the unsuspecting sir andrew felling him to the ground all this occurred within the short space of two or three seconds and before either lord antony or sir andrew had time or chance to utter a cry or to make the faintest struggle they were each seized by two men a muffler was quickly tied round the mouth of each and they were pinioned to one another back to back their arms hands and legs securely fastened one man had in the meanwhile quietly shut the door he wore a mask and now stood motionless while the others completed their work all safe citoyen said one of the men as he took a final survey of the bonds which secured the two young men good replied the man at the door now search their pockets and give me all the papers you find this was promptly and quietly done the masked man having taken possession of all the papers listened for a moment or two if there were any sound within the fisherman's rest evidently satisfied that this dastardly outrage had remained unheard he once more opened the door and pointed peremptorily down the passage the four men lifted sir andrew and lord antony from the ground and as quietly as noiselessly as they had come they bore the two pinioned young gallants out of the inn and along the dover road into the gloom beyond in the coffee-room the mass leader of this daring attempt was quickly glancing through the stolen papers not a bad day's work on the whole he muttered as he quietly took off his mask and his pale fox-like eyes glittered in the red glow of the fire not a bad day's work he opened one or two letters from sir andrew folks's pocket-book noted the tiny scrap of paper which the two young men had only just had time to read but one letter specially signed armand st just seemed to give him strange satisfaction armand st just a traitor after all he murmured now fair marguerite blakeney he added viciously between his clenched teeth i think that you will help me to find the scarlet pimpernel End of chapter nine